that is one thing I wanted to talk to you about because you made、mm. this thought-provoking post on COVID and nutrition and the immune system and mortality rates. And I think the trouble about written text is that you miss so much nuance and context、mm. and tone and what did she mean and what did he mean. And so I would love if you're down to talk about it.、Um, basically, has COVID changed the way you approach and see nutrition? What has it highlighted? And I guess I want to touch on. Actually, let me let me go there first. Let me not、yep. even get too much. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Yeah. Awesome.、Um, for myself personally, like I wouldn't say it's changed the way I view nutrition, but it's certainly changed the way that we、um, have been able to deliver it to our clients. That I guess in this pandemic have really appreciated the role that they have in looking after their health, rather than handing over all their power, which we do see happening in you know other areas of the world, and and certainly. In those that I guess aren't yet understanding the importance of our immune system right now, so when it first started, when sort of COVID first started, the start of the conversation was like, right, what can we do to make sure we have this really beautiful, robust immune system,、mm. which means we're going to decrease our susceptibility to viruses, of which COVID is a virus, and. Not so、um, long after that, we actually started to see a lot of research in China coming through about the role of vitamin C. So there was literature coming through that was really supporting what we were already saying.、Um, some of the studies being done in China were, you know, very high doses of intravenous vitamin、yeah. C. So not exactly what we were talking about, you know, by eating your berries and your broccoli and your capsicum and things like that. But from a foundational point of view. We need to make sure that we do have a high dietary intake of vitamin C. So it's easy to meet the RDA, the recommended daily allowance, but that's like to avoid things like scurvy, right? Not to optimize our immune system, especially in times of dire need. So yeah, with my clients, I've been talking a lot about obviously just making sure we've got a high dietary intake of vitamin C, and then now with a greater understanding of how much vitamin C we might need. For the specifics of COVID, looking for supplementation to complement the diet. So that's been like the start of the conversation around vitamin C in particular. Yeah, that is really interesting.、Um, I've seen a lot of that research you're referring to,、um, especially the intravenous stuff, and then the what is and I get it from sort of from Don, Dr. Rhonda Patrick talking about how、mm. you know vitamin C stores will be very readily depleted, and so you need this consistent. Top up on a daily basis to maintain those robust effects on the respiratory system. Do you have a dose scale recommendation that you prescribe to yourself or that you recommend to your clients? Yeah, I mean, for most people, like a lot of the literature is actually only looking at one thousand milligrams. So this is way before COVID days. Yeah, yeah. So that's why we see a lot of supplements on the market where their serve is one thousand, so one thousand milligrams. So that's pretty standard. Um, but from a safety perspective,、um, we know that vitamin C is a water-soluble vitamin, so it's not fat-soluble, which means it could build up in the body if we were to take excess because it's water-soluble. If we were to take a little bit too much, we'd know about it, but we'd either, you know, weird out or we'd end up with diarrhea, right? So obviously, we don't want to create that situation, but we've got a lot more room to move. With water-soluble vitamins like C, so a lot of my clients are usually taking more like the two and a half grams, especially anyone who's needing more nervous system support or is a bit more stressed, especially at this、uh, in this period of our lives. Because, like you said,、um, and what you were learning off、um, Rhonda Patrick, when we're stressed, our body literally steals vitamin C. To make stress hormones like cortisol, so our vitamin C is then not available to support our immune system, right? So we do need to look at higher doses. Two、um, and a half grams is also not high. You could be taking that multiple times a day, and、um, in some clients, yeah, they definitely need like closer to five grams a day. So we could do that split into two to three doses.、Mm-hmm. It all depends on bowel tolerance because some people are super sensitive to too much vitamin C, and so we'd split their doses up a little more. If that doesn't apply to you, we can just do morning and night doses and get five grams in a day. Interesting. And do you think that is 
probably a great maintenance um, supplement to maintain long term, chronically, or do you think cycling is more of an intelligent approach? Yeah, I agree with you, cycling, the latter, because right now we need more. So we take more. Um, It's sort of like the vitamin D conversation in winter alone, not to mention in a global pandemic. So, yeah, it's really relative. Like most things in nutrition and health should be. Um, So let's say on the other side of the pandemic, when hopefully it's, at least in Australia, it's no longer winter, our vitamin C requirements would be different again. So we might then have a maintenance dose of, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 or two grams, which is then different to that five grams, which we can do in winter and in, in, you know, times of high, high needs. That makes sense. And I th- you mentioned vitamin D and I, mm. the reason you hear me typing away is I'm trying to pull up some of the studies and notes that I was taking yes. on this stuff. And yeah. what we saw with vitamin D, and I'll read it out, that mm. in this one study, supplementation cut uh, risk of respiratory illness so the risk of respiratory illness infection by 50 percent in people who were deficient and a decreased Mm. risk by 10 percent in people with normal vitamin d levels so we see benefit in decreasing respiratory illness now it's not specifically covid that's there's other research on that um but we see benefit whether you're deficient or you have adequate levels even though the adequate levels probably aren't i know well that's the that's the point with reference ranges isn't it adequate is often very low yes exactly (laughs) do you want to talk about that and vitamin d yeah, I'd love to, like, because the vitamin D is another really hot topic at the moment because there is research about the role that it plays with the respiratory system and there's been specific studies around COVID. So, of course, it's a really hot topic right now. Yeah. Most people know vitamin D as that sort of sunshine or sunlight hormone. It's actually a hormone, not a vitamin. Exactly. So it can com- um, confuse people a little just by nature of its name. But I also think that a lot of people are really kind of more aware around vitamin C and its role in bone health and preventing osteoporosis, but it's actually a really potent antiviral agent. So what is COVID? A virus. So we're wanting to make sure that we're really optimizing our body's ability to fight viruses. And vitamin D plays a huge role in supporting our innate and adaptive immune systems, which means, again, like we're all about building robust immune systems so that we can be exposed to somebody that is infected and it it doesn't necessarily mean that we are going to catch that really contagious virus Mm. obviously there are so many factors so let's not misinterpret what i'm saying but the studies on the the levels of vitamin d that we need are really interesting to me because the optimal levels using australian units are the 100 to 150 nanomoles per liter and this is what i've been talking about for years like all of my clients we set that goal to have a minimum of 100 and i'm seeing a lot of people like even yesterday i had a client you know young healthy female of my age and her vitamin d was 47 so it was really low and um, there's lots of risk factors with that from an immune system point of view from an immune health point of view from a hormone point of view so yeah we've got to do what we can do to get those levels up now you would have seen the numbers in the research a lot of it was looking at 10,000 international units so supplementing with quite a high dose now Mm -hmm. i personally don't normally use that dose but this is not a normal situation it's like a global pandemic so what i wanted to mention though is the 10,000 is being pretty clearly shown to be beneficial but it's only being dosed that high initially. So for someone that's got that low vitamin D, we might do 10,000 international units every day for a couple of weeks to get them right up to 100 and then put them on a maintenance dose so that they can maintain between that optimal reference range of 100 to 150. And so that optimal reference range um, is again, supported in the literature and the maintenance dose might be more like 3,000 international units. And then when you can get in the sun, when it's summer, your dose will change again. I think that's a really important point you made. It's like we're cycling depending on Mm. blood markers, season, Mm. environment, and lifestyle. And we're not just indiscriminately prescribing supplementations based on research or what he says or she says. Well, I agree, which is why even that 10,000 
international unit research just concerns me a little bit because what we will see is an article like that discussed on Facebook, everybody just taking 10,000 international mm. units and not even knowing what their blood levels are. Yeah, exactly. There's issues in Australia because vitamin D was taken off the Medicare list. So lots, lots yeah. of doctors are actually reluctant to, to test that. So, so you have to pay sometimes for it. can't even get the data. Yeah, you might have to pay for it, which not everyone wants to do. And then we're not getting our individual levels, nor are we retesting. So that cycle, like that cyclic process should be, okay, yeah, I know I need X international units now and I'm going to retest in six months and adjust accordingly. So we can't just take information off Facebook and then apply it to ourselves blindly. But that's so common now, right? And so that's why conversations like this are so important Mm. to bridge that gap. And I want to, to talk about vitamin D continually because like, I don't, I think we, again, like you said, it, people call it a vitamin, but it's actually a hormone. And to put context mm. on it, it's like, imagine like a hormone like testosterone, when that's really low in males, or estrogen plummets through menopause, or we get a progesterone dominance, or whatever hormonal imbalance occurs, we treat that seriously, okay? Yeah. But vitamin D, it's not treated as seriously, yet it controls about 124th of the human expression of the human genome, right? Mm. So a huge amount of uh, genes are being switched on and switched off and controlled by this amazing hormone. And I think it's very important that such a simple supplement probably can have such a big benefit. Do you think that's one of the most important to take? Do you have like kind of a list in your head of like a top Mm. supplements? Yeah, well, right now I do, like, which is, again, different to what it would have been in, you know, 2019. But, like, sure. my rhetorical question like, right now yeah. is imagine if our government was handing out international units of vitamin D to everyone rather than just putting us in lockdown and creating a lot of fear. Now, I'm not saying that lockdown is not important. Right. So, again, please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. But I just think we're off track with how we can, you know, spend two billion dollars on a vaccine that may never be found Mm -hmm. yet our premier is telling everybody that the only solution is the vaccine which is then creating a lot of fear in people who don't need any more of that yet the vitamin d conversation is being like largely suppressed and those of us that talk about it online are being significantly abused and you know it's just unfortunate that we can't have a really educated conversation around what the research says and how we can be proactive rather than reactive about our health so yeah c and d are one and two for supplements right now (sighs) okay definitely want to talk about that but before (laughs) because that's so important but before Mm. we to clarify about vitamin d i think when people Mm. just say take vitamin d um maybe you have different thoughts on it but taking it with k2 to prevent over calcification um which Mm. can occur through high vitamin d supplementation do you consider that important i know it's something i implement and recommend is that for you too yeah certainly at high doses yes if you were just doing like a normal sort of you know your 1000 international unit there are plenty of high quality brands on the market that don't um, co-prescribe with k2 but then of course the higher dose we go which is this conversation that we're talking about now absolutely looking at k2 which is one of our other Sort of really important micronutrients but it's out one of our key fat soluble vitamins which um we we definitely need my goodness but we also don't want to overdo because again they're fat soluble so they can build up in the body and yeah. be problematic it's rare but we still want to have that on our radar for sure okay i just wanted to clarify that point and yeah. this is the benefit about like a podcast or a face-to-face conversation is that you're limited with characters in an instagram post and like oh story of my life i know right but do you i feel like i have to write like at least 500 words of some kind of a disclaimer so that the trolls don't come at me and then i still get criticized because i haven't discussed the whole global pandemic in 300 characters like come on i know instagram it's and look you're being very reasonable with your emotion right now like you can (sighs) i can it's the yoga in there yeah because for me i feel that uh, frustration, which is why I try and have all meaningful conversations through this means, right? Yeah. But you still want to deliver information and content through the means that you have. So yeah. let's clarify some things because to back up a little bit, you made the point about well, our government's spending X amounts on um, 
restrictions and, and PPEs and medical equipment, which is critically important. Critically mm. important. Let's not um, push that aside. Downplay that, yeah. Yeah, thank you. However, why isn't the conversation from a systemic government level being discussed where, well, they'll, they'll talk about masks and they'll talk about being reactive, locking down like you said. But what if, what if we didn't have 50 to 70% of the adult population overweight and obese? Oh my God, you're speaking to the choir here because this is exactly what I was talking about on Instagram only a week or two ago. Yes. So it's, it's sort of like there's a few diseases which we have, which we can cluster in that sort of diabetes epidemic. So yes. we've got type 2 diabetes and avoidable lifestyle disease. We've got obesity and avoidable lifestyle disease. We've got insulin resistance, same thing. All these inflammatory conditions which are killing 10,000 people every year in Australia and no one is talking about it. Imagine if the government was like, cancelling sugary foods right now instead of closing down restaurants like the food supply that we have access to and ironically the food that people are buying when they go to Coles and crazily shop is all the refined foods high in sugar high in refined carbohydrate perpetuating perpetuating our global health crisis which is a significant risk factor like when we look at the death rate, of course, we never want anyone to die. So no one is saying that the death rate is not significant. But it's something like 95% of people have a significant comorbidity like insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes and obesity. Yeah. So like we've got to connect the dots. I know, I know young people are unwell and unfortunately there are some young people who have died. But what we're talking about is predominantly who is dying it's those that are unhealthy and we can do something about that you exactly. know insulin resistance is the big common denominator that can be like reversed in like a matter of a week or two with the right dietary prescription so not solved but you can start to move away from that carbohydrate intolerance picture very quickly with the right dietary advice have we heard this discussion once with COVID-19 well, Never. here's the thing. We've heard it from the the powerful, quote-unquote, influencers, mm. uh, uh, health and fitness, wellness coaches, nutritionists, dietitians like yourself. You'll hear from the Rhonda Patricks. You might, you'll hear from Great, which is Joe Rogan's talking about on his podcast. He's mm. talking about, why don't we talk about the immune system, how we can strengthen it, like we're talking about here. But how do we... I mean, we're creating change here through the conversation now, okay? That's People can go mm. vitamin D, vitamin C... You know, if you're overweight or obese or have some type of preventable condition, lifestyle condition, you need to address that. But do you think it's even worth the conversation or it's even of value to discuss how we can change it from a governmental level? So then maybe our premiers and our leaders are saying, hey, guys, we recommend this and this nutrition and supplement and lifestyle changes you're going to have this and this diminished uh, uh, decrease of a risk of respiratory illness, of this, of that. Is that, can we do that? How do we do that? Well, it's starting. It's been going on for a number of years. So COVID aside with the sugar tax, obviously that was the first sort of big intervention at a government level. Um, but like the unfortunate reality is not dissimilar to that vaccine conversation it's governed by big pharma who yeah. essentially rule the western world and sitting next to them is big food so you know it's such a huge topic but the the reality is is that like crap food is cheap and not us but the majority of the world like especially low socioeconomic and you know not so western countries like this is almost like, unfortunately, a bit of a privileged conversation. And I get mm. um, okay. attacked for this all the time, right? But I'm also like we are today talking to my audience who are, you know, pretty much all just like us. They, like they live in a Western world. So we do have the choice to a degree. It's a bit of a bubble. Yeah. And so I'm really aware of it's so different on a global scale. But it's up to us educating those that don't quite know what they can control 
but yeah, the government needs to step in because the, the healthy food is still expensive or they think it's expensive and there's lots of barriers and, and um, myths around that need to be broken down in time as well. <sighs> so it sounds like it comes down to continual education and leadership from the community. Is... I think it's going to be a grassroots project for sure, like we're already doing because of the fact that certain research is being suppressed. And, you know, I like I'm feeling really frustrated like about this whole situation. Like there's so much more I want to say, but it's such a sensitive topic that part of me feels like um, it's almost not worth it sometimes, but I'm not willing to step down. So it's just so complicated. There's so many nuances and areas that need to be addressed, but certainly with us and who we interact with and that flow on effect when, you know, one person in a family or household makes a change, like that's kind of a slow way to do it, but it's still us taking back our control. Yeah. And we have to, we can't ignore what we eat and how, what role that plays for our immune system and our microbiome health. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think what you're saying, can you touch on the, the privilege thing? I just want to understand mm. that argument people are trying yeah. to make. What, what was so your feeling? So you like? and I are like, basically, in summary, you and I are like, you know what, just eat healthy and, and don't be overweight and then you won't be a risk factor for COVID. But you and I can afford healthy food and we have access to it. So what about all the people in third world countries that are dying of COVID, they're not sitting around eating junk food. They don't even have access to healthy food and water. So they've obviously got really different risk factors. And it's a privileged thing to say, it's just about fixing your food because not everyone has that capacity. So the vaccine argument is like, we need a vaccine because we need to be able to help those that can't buy vitamin C and vitamin D and berries and kiwi fruit. So I'm just really conscious of that global conversation um, but I don't think those of us in the West should be lining up for a vaccine and sending all of our power away, at least without doing the foundations like you and I are discussing today. Okay. So, all right. So the, the conversation there sounds like, I just need to acknowledging, need, needing to acknowledge that, you know, there are numerous populations who are under oppression or under certain low, much lower social economic mm. um, opportunities. And that isn't a problem in of itself, right? That has a whole bunch of cascade of downstream consequences that I think we all can uh, step up and address and mm. talk about as well. Mm. But I don't think it, it should diminish from the conversation that while there's a lot of people struggling, there's mm. a lot of people who are also uh, middle class and, and can afford good food, but they just choose not to. Right, yeah. and I don't know the statistics on how many COVID blah 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 people, um, you know, died, and based on their social economic status, mm. I don't know. Okay, but why don't we control what we can control? And yeah. so, to me, that sounds like maybe you can't afford really high quality nutrition, but here's what you can afford to do: you can afford to go outside and go for a walk. Mm. You can afford. If you have a smartphone, which if you're listening and watching to this, you do, you can afford to educate yourself for free on the litany of information and start taking steps towards improving your lifestyle. Now, that takes mm. discipline. It takes resilience. It takes a commitment. Mm. But I think we need to empower the community and the individuals to take responsibility for their actions. Um, look, you don't choose where you're born. It's not maybe not your fault the way you are. But it's damn, damn sure your responsibility to fix yourself, right? Mm -hmm. We sit here because we were once in a position of poor health, right? Mm -hmm. We had to earn this position. And I think we, we people look at us, and I'm going on a bit of a rant here, but people look at us like, uh, like we're privileged, like you were born into this. And some people yeah. are, but I mean, I'm not going to get into health issues I've had, and we don't have to get into health issues you've had, but they exist. And we're mm -hmm. here for a reason. And so maybe we can talk to each other and say, how can I help you improve your well-being and health? And so, yeah. yeah. I think it's just important to acknowledge that. We're, it's not a separate conversation, yeah. but it's almost separate advice for those that have the 
fortune to be able to make those choices. But that's essentially who we're talking to right now. So I think that's what's important. Taking Educating ourselves, I could not agree more. Um, perhaps turning off the news to a degree and, and, yeah, looking at what you can control. Like that is number one because there is so much we can do. <sighs> there is. And I hope people can take something from mm. this conversation where they can feel like they have a bit more control and autonomy over their decisions. Mm. Is there anything else you want to touch on there? Anything you want to acknowledge? Maybe some pent-up um, things that you want to address at least in this open dialogue format? or is Around yeah. COVID in particular? Yeah, or the immune system and, and mm. being um, proactive instead of reactive. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that we have to start to think about when we're talking about the immune system is the role of the microbiome because the immune system is really complicated like i can't even talk to it in entire detail that's definitely not my expertise but what we do know is that 80 percent of the immune system is found in our gut so it's the role of the microbiome that i think is the next level for people to start to understand just top level but you know it's quite easy to say eat these fruit and vegetables that are high in vitamin c take some vitamin c take some vitamin d great so we're building on that and then we understand, all right, so what's next when it comes to our microbiome? So I think that's a really important part of the conversation because we are just a human host. You know, we are 90 to 90%, 99% bacteria. So we, we've really got to understand the role of, of that. And of course, the diet is the priority. You know, what I've found really kind of ironic and circling back to something I said before around the pandemic is, at least in Australia, people are selling like literally selling the supermarkets out of the worst of the worst packet fried food all the middle aisles full of the convenient refined carbohydrates everyone's developing an addiction to baking their own bread and overdoing the carbs and all that sugar in that picture is going to direct our microbiome to be more pro-inflammatory in nature and that's obviously not what we want we want to create this beautiful anti-inflammatory microbiome full of these beneficial microbes that form a huge part of our immune system. So refined sugar's got to go. We've got to look at reducing our intake of refined carbohydrates. And there's like so much more that we can do, which I'll, I'll talk to you about today. But as a foundation, you know, we want to have a lot of fiber because fiber is king when it comes to our microbiome health. It almost sounds too simple and too good to be true. But if we look at any of the literature that's coming out you know, in recent years around gut health or the microbiome, the answer is a really high dietary fiber intake. So soluble and insoluble fiber, resistant starch. So we're really feeding our biome and creating that anti-inflammatory environment, which is again, our defense to the outside world. So making us more robust from the inside out. Absolutely. And I, and I think when, when we talk about the gut microbiome, I think it can become a very heady conversation. And I think mm. if you've really touched on it, quite broadly and nicely to overview it um but it can become quite bogged down in, in nuance and science but what do you think one thing i mean you you mentioned the fiber yeah, yeah. Well, like we mentioned that improving fiber content we mentioned reducing sugar and refined carbohydrates but mm. i think there's a big psychological uh aspect to these foods and people get mm. addicted to them people associate them with certain behaviors how do you think people can actually create that behavior change and how as coaches can, can we help that facilitate that yeah in in my sort of role the first pillar is blood sugar control okay so we all know that the blood sugar control is you know, one thing that's a stable blood sugar during the day which recreates our ongoing food choices determines whether we have things like sugar cravings or 330-itis or the desire to overeat as the day goes on. So that blood sugar roller coaster that a lot of people are on means that they're more susceptible to, to want to eat sugary foods or carby foods and to not feel like or you know crave things like broccoli. And so that I think as coaches, like we've really got to look at you know macros and micros to teach our clients that really one of their biggest goals is blood sugar control. And it does start from that first meal of the day. 
Um, but we also don't want to perpetuate the Western model of having to eat breakfast the moment that we wake up. So it's very individual. And then, of course, you know, meal timing and fasting windows and things like that are also very individual. So, you know, I do a lot of that work with my one-on-one clients to kind of design their day to help with blood sugar control. But a lot of it is actually being confident confident to step away from probably what we were taught in school, right? Mm-hmm. So like what I would have learned at uni, I imagine what you learned in your training, Alex, it's quite conventional. It's quite low calorie. It's quite low fat. You have to eat every two hours to speed up your metabolism. And these are all myths that are funded by big food. And it's not a con- co- coincidence when someone unlearns that and realizes they don't have to eat every two hours they don't have to eat the food pyramid and all the six to 11 serves of whole grains per day. They don't have to eat 400 to 600 grams of carbs per day. Fats won't make you fat. Like all of these things that we're unlearning over the last five decades for some people is a journey, but it's our role to break down those myths and translate it well enough to our clients who are just the consumer. Absolutely. I mean, you've already touched on like, such huge topics, <laughs> right? But th- these are th- here's the thing: people yeah. make conclusions based off a snippet or ten mm. minutes of conversation. But these are extremely nuanced conversations, right? Mm. And there is a litany of evidence and research. How do you think people can best critically think to analyze data and to make decisions based on the information? Because in an age where people headline read and make quick decisions. How can we become better thinkers, you think? Mm. Mm. Well, those of us educational role or a coach role, I actually think a little bit of biohacking trial and error can be interesting because it's really hard to believe someone who's telling you the opposite of what you've always known for like your whole life. So trying it out for yourself could be really fascinating. Like, a lot of people that come to see me have um, digestive issues or microbiome issues or like even if it's something as basic as bloating. And they're the people that have been told to, every, to eat every two hours and they're really bound by their appetite. So when they look at me and I've told them that they could possibly only need three meals a day, no snacks, they look afraid like they can't fathom the idea of not eating every couple of hours but that's a product of their environment of their poor blood sugar control of their you know incorrect macronutrient balance and then you change things so like you turn it upside down and give them you know whole food carbs but quality protein healthy fats the proof's in the pudding they go away and they don't need to eat every every two and they might be eating every four hours and all their symptoms are resolved. So they didn't believe me initially, but when they found out and felt, you know, felt the benefits themselves, they're a convert. Right. So we can do that ourselves as coaches. We can just try a few things. And, and then in terms of the literature, it is about taking a deeper dive and obviously not headline reading. And rather than relying on Facebook, like jump into PubMed or similar and, and spend the time like, helping to unlearn some of those myths that we've all been taught for so long. Absolutely. I think that's a a key. One point I think I'd recommend to people is learn from people who are already spending their life distilling the information, right? Mm. Like, I mean, we mentioned Rhonda Patrick before, like she has these huge comprehensive articles on all Mm. these different topics, right? Mm -hmm. If you are curious on COVID or the effect efficacy of vitamin D or this supplement or that supplement, I think we should seek out these health professionals, even like yourself, who are diving deep into women's health and the menstrual mm. cycle and pregnancy so you can make better decisions. Mm. Um, and then you said, what was that last thing you said? Excuse me. Breaking down myths. Like we were talking more about how we could educate our clients, like getting them to try new strategies to, yeah. you know, to experience it firsthand because it's really hard to convince someone that what they've always been told is wrong like that's what I have found especially around like the carbon fat conversation like nearly everyone is coming to me and they've been told you know not to have certain fats like butter and they've been told to cut the fat off their meats and you know all that like that huge conversation around especially the demonization of saturated fats and they're really afraid to eat those foods yeah and 
they almost have to start quite gradually, but the proof is in the pudding in terms of how they feel as a result, but also what their blood profiles do, do yes. especially if it's around that sort of cholesterol and oh, statin conversation and, and um, you know, that, that area of health, which I think is probably the biggest area of malpractice that we've seen in the last five decades because it's an incorrect lipid hypothesis and people are taking statin drugs and it's, you know, suppressing their inbuilt cholesterol production, which is 25% of what their brain is made of. And then we're seeing an increase in Alzheimer's and dementia. And we think right. it's a coincidence. Right. Like it's just not people are depleting all of their cholesterol. What is cholesterol? It's, it's a building block for all of our hormones, yes. including vitamin D. Yes. So we need cholesterol and we, we also need saturated fat because it's another building block for our hormones, right? And so there was a research paper in June, so recently, which was um, basically um, like, what's the word I was saying? Uh, I can't think of it right now, it'll come back to me, but like proving that saturated fats weren't gonna cause heart disease or cardiovascular disease. Yet we don't see that being spoken about in the media. It gets shared on Facebook a few times by those of us that are really passionate about the topic. We don't see the conversation being had in the media because big food don't want us to know that whole foods are good for us because then they won't, we won't be buying avocados or we won't be buying you know, free-range eggs. We'll be buying packets and boxes. So mm. educating ourselves is so important because these amazing studies that literally disprove a 50-year theory are being hidden from us. Yeah. And like that's malpractice. Absolutely. And to touch, well, okay, to touch on cholesterol, let's, we need to make the point mm. that most of it is made mm. endogenously in the body, mm. right? So when people see these high cholesterol levels, um, we have to dive in how much of that is really from nutrition versus lifestyle versus genetic too, right? Yeah. Well, only one to 2% is influenced by the diet. Oh, I one it, to 2%. Mm. Right. See, I've, I've heard even, I've heard like 10 to 20, but even like, Whatever it is, it is low, right? It is mm. very low relative to the, the versus what your body makes. Please keep going. Hundred percent. Yeah. So, what, so that's what that's, a, that's the issue. Is people have been told not to eat saturated fat, like that's going to solve the issue when it only influences our blood lipid profile by one to two percent. So that doesn't make sense. So, the big picture is what we're understanding now is that inflammation is the issue. So we know that inflammation is linked with most, if not all, chronic diseases and inflammation of the heart is cardiovascular disease. So what do we look for? Well, total cholesterol by itself tells us nothing about the level of inflammation. So we don't really need to even look at the total cholesterol. We need it for our ratios. So we're still gonna be testing for it. But firstly, we look at our triglycerides to make sure they're less than one mm -hmm. um, Australian unit, because that shows us whether we're inflammatory or not. So less than one is the goal. Mm -hmm. And then we want to dive deeper into our ratios. So what I mean by that is we look at the total cholesterol to HDL ratio, which actually gives us a fairly good indication of LDL particle size. Let's take a step back. Most people know that HDLs have been called good yeah. and LDLs have, called, have been called bad cholesterol. But it's That's not that in simple. itself incorrect. Yeah, yeah, please go. So HDL, HDL is positive, but LDLs have what we call subfractions. So we can have large, fluffy LDL particles, which protect the heart, or we can have small, dense LDL particles, which carry plaque and contribute to clogging our arteries and cardiovascular disease. So HD, sorry, pardon me, total cholesterol to the HDL ratio, less than 3.5 is our goal. Large, fluffy LDL particles, which are good. If our total cholesterol to HDL ratio is too high, so five and above, then it indicates that we have too many small dense LDLs and we need to make change. But what fixes inflammation? Whole food diet, high omega-3 intake, losing weight, exercising, not having any nutrient deficiencies, including vitamin D. So it's largely preventable. Of course, there are genetic exceptions, but for the majority of us, Cardiovascular disease shouldn't exist. Yeah, and uh, let, let's clarify. You said for the majority. You didn't say for everybody. Mm. It's not black and mm. white. You're mm. saying that, and, and you know what? I think it touches on, it makes me think, how much would we really be talking about viruses like the COVID? Yeah, I if, agree with you. If uh, we had 
5 to 10% of our population overweight or obese. I could not agree more. Look at America. I mean, everyone's losing their mind over there about the death rates, yeah. but they have the worst health status. Mm-hmm. It's not a coincidence. No, no. They have the worst the worst food system. Like we 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 have to do something longer term because hopefully you and I won't see another pandemic, but I've already got one child and I don't want her to have to go through this when she's my age. And so, yeah, we need much broader changes because if we didn't have all of our chronic lifestyle diseases, well, we probably wouldn't have a death rate like we do. Yes. And then we wouldn't have this global fear pandemic. But it makes sense why they're responding the way they do because we don't want to see death. We don't want to see mm. illness. Of course mm. not. And so they're going to respond with... It's reactive. Yeah. They're, mm. going to re- oh, they're going to react with what they have, what their population mm. um, is, is able to cope against. And so I get it, right? But, mm. you know, let's take some steps in creating monumental change because if this... I mean, what's a better trigger for revolutionizing and, and reframing uh, the perspective on changing people's health than this. Maybe that can be the big positive that comes from it. Well, those of us that are sort of in this space have been saying it's the global awakening. <laughs> so I do right. see a massive change of, it's almost like we've had the wool pulled off yeah. because in the West, we've essentially been sheep. We've been, yes, sir, no, sir. We've been following the food pyramid. We've been taking our pharmaceuticals. We've been, you know, good boys and good girls. And a lot of people have are really sick as a result. And then even though COVID has been horrific, the plus is that those that are um, have their eyes open are really understanding how what role they play. And there is a bigger awakening, like those that never really looked at their health or looked at their vitamin D levels are starting to do this. So it will be positive long term. That's obviously quite a slow process, but it has to start somewhere. Yes. And this pandemic has been a huge catalyst for that. I think that's incredible. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's a quote I keep repeating uh, by Napoleon Hill. I'm paraphrasing, but with every seed of adversity, there's an equal equal opportunity of benefit. Totally agree. Totally agree. So we all have to... the crisis before the rebuild, you know? Yeah, we all have Mm. to find that opportunity of benefit. Um, and, And that expresses itself, I believe, through this reframing of health and wellness. But uh, we could talk about, we could keep diving deeper into all this stuff for, for hours, I think. But for sure, I want to, you know, I'm satisfying my own curiosity with all this stuff mm. right now. But I love it. Um, yeah. Also having to understand Orphic Education, you know, we, mm. we, we, we are a business and company that delivers certificate threes and fours in fitness to um, create trainers, personal trainers and coaches. And so how we teach is going to be critically important to Mm. creating that change from a systemic level. And that's why we want to talk to people like you. And so for a lot of the coaches and trainers listening, what do you think are the biggest gaps in knowledge that younger coaches and trainers and even, you know, very well established um, Mm. have on nutrition and wellness? What would you tell them? Well, I, I actually think it starts with the calorie, the calorie fallacy. Because I, I mean, I used to be a personal trainer as well. So I get what the world is like, that world is like, but it was a long time ago. So what I don't want to do is speak to what the education is like now, because I'm not across what you guys are, are teaching, but I'm curious, maybe you could give me a little bit of insight. Like what level do you go in with teaching your trainers how to prescribe calories and macros and things like that? Okay. I'll tell you two answers. One, what the majority <laughs> do, and one, what we do, right? Okay, awesome. Mm-hmm. So one, what the majority do is the training.gov and certificate threes and fours, they prescribe one module of nutrition. One module mm-hmm. um, can be, you know, a decent amount of time. We're talking, you know, a five, 10 to 20 hours, right? Depending on the organization. However, we have to look at the quality of that information is usually not the highest, mm. generally speaking, um, because it's based on, you know, very surface level information, um, very uh, traditional uh, medicine, traditional food practice. Mm. However, for us, especially uh, for me, being able to have control and autonomy over what we create and teach, um, it's completely different. It's the awesome. conversation we're having, which is what yeah. we want to make. So there's two boats, the majority over here, traditional, yeah. and the minority over here that's just trying to become the majority. Yeah. 
which is which is so good to, like it's just incredible i think it, it so needs to happen because Absolutely. unfortunately i'm still seeing too many people that think that 1200 calories is, is the magic number and with all due respect it's not helped by programs like michelle bridges who still follow that calorie fallacy and the issue with that which most of you guys will know is that it's just not enough fuel it causes Absolutely. that starvation mode and for women a huge host of psychological yes. and hormonal issues issues amenorrhea fertility issues and so on and so forth and it's a really hard road to come back from because when someone tells you that you're not going to gain weight if you eat 1700 calories how the hell do you get your head around that when you've only believed the calories in calories out models so this is an area that i've worked in for over 10 years now and it's a challenging process but obviously with you guys not delivering 1200 calories in the first place that's going to be such a huge part of the journey because we need fuel but we also need to understand our metabolism because we can burn fat in an environment of adequate calories if we control things like our insulin levels which comes back to our carbohydrate intake our hormones which also comes back to key nutrients like omega-3s and magnesium but also making sure that we're not under eating you know that we're not in that starvation mode or overtraining. so you know i obviously practice under a lower carbohydrate model people online think i give everyone keto which is bullshit if i could swear swear for a moment but i do tend towards the lower carbohydrate um side of things especially in the weight loss environment because we want to keep our insulin low so our body can burn fat so dietary fat but fat stores and then we can eat more food focusing on quality of course rather than just if it fits your macros um but understanding physio physiology 101, like you don't need to have done a degree in it, but it's just really understanding how we can create that metabolic environment for fat loss. And then of course, how it different, differs if it's muscle gain. But in that area, I still don't prescribe, you know, buckets of protein and, and meals every two hours either. Like I've also worked with many people with quite a different model for muscle gain. And that's what my goal is to be um, creating a model that's sustainable because anyone can eat every two hours and eat chicken and broccoli and, you know, 300 grams of protein a day for a period of time, hmm. but it's not sustainable. So it's not going to achieve the results long-term. So it is about, yeah, the myths, breaking down the myths. And for you guys that are grassroots from an education point of view, making sure that you really understand that and you know how to do it individually because we don't want blanket advice because our clients are all very different. Absolutely. I'm glad you said that because hmm. we need to clarify that always because people take what you say as a blanket statement yeah um and but you talked about uh you know wanting to gain muscle for example and i think mm. bucket loads of protein and carbohydrates that not being sustainable and um there's i think the unfortunate thing for you know people like myself people who have very aggressive you know performance or body composition goals is it can be quite antithetical to longevity and health because yeah. th there's a thing called um, the dispensable soma theory by Thomas Kirkwood. I don't know if you've heard of it. Have you? I haven't, but it's fascinating already to me. Well, mm -hmm. all, all it means it's it's just describes this performance and growth long slash longevity trade off that there's mm. this trade off to DNA repair. Uh, For sure, and aging. eating all the time, autophagy. Yeah. Exactly, and that you know someone wanting to be the most effective possible at performance and muscular hypertrophy um, mm. may have to put those things aside for a period of time. Um, do you have any, rope. Mm. Yeah. Do you have any mm. thoughts on walking that tightrope? I know I try and do it by mm. implementing different fasting regimes and supplements and controlling my metabolic yeah. health. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely think it's a tightrope for sure because like everyone knows about fasting and autophagy for longevity and obviously um the you know the telomere conversation but um then of course when you're trying to gain you need to eat a little lot of calories it's impossible to do in an eight hour window right so that's the challenge that we face um but i also think that we can't assume that one day of fasting a week is going to be detrimental to our goals like mm. I would never prescribe seven days of fasting to you if you were my client, right? Versus if I had 
an overweight male who wanted to lose weight and not get heart disease, well, he could do 16-8 till the cows come home, right? Because he probably only needs two meals a day. And so that's where it starts to get really individual. It's not just males v females. So, you know, I think it is going to be a little bit of trial and error. Like just start with one day of 16-8, have two really high quality meals. You can still have 2,000 calories there quite easily. Mm. So it's not no food. It might not be 3,000. Um, but you could still be getting the best of both worlds by testing a little bit of fasting or a little bit of, you know, the DNA repair and then every day committing to at least a 12 hour or maybe a circadian rhythm fast, which does show a lot of um, health benefits as well, but isn't a more sort of extreme version as, as 16, eight, you're optimizing your pathology. Go on. Mm. Oh, I was just saying you're referring to time restricted eating, Dr. Yeah. Volta Longo stuff. Longo, but I mean, it's really the work of Dr. Sachin Panda oh, at the Panda okay. Institute yeah. or the Salk Institute rather. And so he's doing all the research around TRF, which is really fascinating. Um, and, and 1311 is really sustainable as well, which 16.8 isn't for everybody and certainly isn't, you know, to be prescribed to women too much and certainly not prescribed in preconception, pregnancy, breastfeeding, etc. So it needs to be really individualised when we're talking about 16.8. Um, more so for women, but definitely for men who have got that muscle gain performance role goal. Yeah, awesome. Um, mm. That that definitely clarifies. I mean, some practical steps that maybe you don't have to be as aggressive with your fasting interventions, but you can still implement it on a weekly basis and still walk that tightrope and get maybe some benefits for DNA repair, autophagy, um, decrease inflammation, and mm. still have your your other six days or whatever amount of days in a surplus and working towards your goals. Yeah, I agree. And then other strategies like optimizing your pathology, like people just don't get their bloods tested. No. Like it blows my mind. Yeah. Like, honestly, it's not that hard to do. You do have to find a good doctor. So yes. that's a little bit of a hiccup or a roadblock sometimes, but it's so important. Like, why are we guessing about our health? Like my little motto is test don't guess. Yeah. So if you want to know how to live a long life, get some data. Yeah. Do a full suite of bloods every six months or even even more frequently if there's a specific goal or intervention going on. Like with my clients, it's every year or every six months, depending on what we're working on. But if anyone's got like a thyroid issue or really low vitamin D or hormonal issue or like what looks like cardiovascular disease around the corner, we're going to test it every three months because we want to know what's working and how the intervention's going. Absolutely. So data is king. And it's a strange world we live in where people get their car serviced more than their oh. body. It's very like... I know, right? When I heard that, I'm like, oh, wow. This is not... This it's is, a, no it's wonder. actually quite a light bulb moment for a lot of people because they're like, when, did the time, when was the last time you got your bloods done? And they can't recall. Oh, and... Unless and, they've been unwell. Mm. And here's another thing. Say, and I think there's a, there's a resistance. Oh, health professionals are expensive. I can't afford to hire Steph Lowe. I can't afford to hire Alexander. Like, okay. Mm. Some people, they can't. I understand. Yeah. They just can't. You are just getting by. But when you audit and challenge people... And you'd be like, all right, how much should you spend on servicing your home appliances and your car? Because people spend thousands of dollars on servicing their car a year. How much should you spend on servicing your body? Yeah. It's, it's a matter of priorities. Like, honestly, the amount that Australia has been drinking during this pandemic, like, you've seen it on the news. It's horrific. Everyone's, like, becoming an alcoholic because they're at home, you know, all day. Yeah. What about that money? Like, that adds up. It, you could, it's doable. True. It's just a matter of priorities. And, and then, you know, there's all those barriers and, and myths that people have as well because people will still think, they still think healthy food is expensive full stop but there's also smart ways to shop and i think what covid has done is shone some light on that like for years like i think probably five years now we my family and i have been buying our grass-fed meat in bulk mm -hmm. from a farm and everyone has thought i was crazy like people look at me like i have two heads when i say we just bought a deep freezer we get our meat and we spend a couple hundred bucks and we do it like a couple of times a year People thought I was totally nuts. Why? What was the and resistance? Then, oh, because it's just not cold. It's just not convenient. It's just not, you know, you have to be a little bit more organized and 
you know, it's different to what I've always done, yeah, like going yeah. to Coles, buying poor quality meat. And then COVID, not long when, when the first wave happened, um, we got an email from the farm that we shopped from saying they had sold out. And I was just like so overwhelmed with happiness for them that people, I mean, they couldn't get their meat from Coles because it had sold out, but it had opened our eyes to other ways of shopping, which are also more affordable and sustainable yeah. and environmentally sustainable ways to shop. Yeah. And that's been another bonus because, you know, Coles was run out. So we've had to find a way elsewhere hopefully we can keep some of these habits on the other side. Absolutely. I love that. Shopping locally and supporting your, knowing your farmer rather than your doctor. And and knowing the local butchers you have who's communicate to the farmers. And and that's, that's a great way to support your community and get really high quality food. But I think I want to finish off and be like, okay, give, give us like the people who maybe can't even afford to buy in bulk. Mm. They typically shop at Coles and these, these grocery supermarkets, um, getting cheaper foods. Can you mm. give us like strategies or just one or two things people can do to buy quality food at a good, affordable price? Quality food at an affordable price is the markets. So if you're not buying in bulk, yeah. you're going to the markets like Dandenong Markets. It's probably one of the more affordable ones. It's only half an hour away for most people. Or you go to Queen Vic later in the day on a Saturday or a Sunday when things are being given away more cheaply because it's the end of trade. So I think there are definitely better ways to shop, which also don't support big companies that don't really care about our health. We're supporting small business, as you said, we're shopping smartly and then we actually make food a priority. If you did your hour of power or your food prep on a Sunday, you'd have a meal for a week or you could start to stock up the freezer, no food wastage, not as much time in the kitchen, a great way to cook different cuts of meats, not just chicken breasts that don't even actually give us any nutrients. We want to eat nose to tail and learn how to cook that way as well. So a cheap slow cooker or a beautiful big um, pot that you can put on the stove and prioritizing your food. Like most people who first come to see me, they think about dinner at 7 p.m. They have to then go to Coles and buy all the ingredients, get home and cook. It's then 8 p.m. It's reactive. That's, yeah, reactive. Exactly. So food needs to come up to almost number one on the priority list. And we need to have a little plan. It doesn't take a lot of time or money, but it needs to be a priority. That, I think that's really practical right there, especially going mm. after when, you know, they're trying to sell their goods at the markets, that they're, they're closing soon. I feel like, that can often be cheaper than sometimes shopping at a supermarket. Way cheaper than Coles. Their grass-fed range is expensive. Yeah. And so, of course, we want to buy quality for the environment and for the animals, but not at the expense of, of that. Certainly, there are cheaper ways to do it and to look after the animals and the environment and our health as well. Steph, I want to be respectful of your time. I could talk to you for hours. Um, I'll, I'll come back on. I'd love to have another chat. <laughs> absolutely. I would love to. And I, I'm going to actually... Um, DM me right now. Just one more thing I want to touch on just off off air. Um, sure, sure. But is there any last thing you want to touch on, comment on, acknowledge, or any asks of the audience, suggestions, or just where people can find you? Yeah, I think just a few things. It's, you know, let's keep spreading the knowledge that we have to continue to empower our audience with knowledge because that's number one for sure. Um, two, I think let's not neglect the foundations because we can get a little bit out here with pills and potions. We've got to make sure that we're building our house from the ground up, not from the roof. So always talking to our clients and our audience about those foundations and reiterating the importance of those lifestyle and dietary choices. Um, And, you know, I think diving into literature. So like you've done, you really understand what's going on at the moment so that you can talk to your clients about the pandemic and what they can do rather than just believing what we read on the news. You guys can follow me online at the natural nutritionist. Either.com.au is my online hub or on the socials. I'd love to um, speak to any of you. And I'm sure we can create a list of topics for future conversations because there's lots of juicy topics we can dive into moving forward. Absolutely. I look forward to the next ones and uh, even meeting you in person again. Um, which <laughs> turns out we know each other. <laughs> yes, we, that we, we talked about before. Um, thank you so mm. much, Steph. I appreciate awesome. your time. I love this. Pleasure. So good. All right. I'll, I'll speak to you soon. Okay. All right. See ya.
Did you get it? You got you to hang up so I can outro this call. Okay. You want me to go? Yeah. I'll talk <laughs> okay. in a second. Bye. See ya. <laughs> All right. That's what I needed. Woo! Steph Lowe. Um, I love that conversation. I get so, so excited talking about this stuff. It is so extremely important. Um, and... I hope it was valuable to you guys, um, but just grounding the conversation in some practical things that we can do to improve our health, our nutrition, our wellness, um, and our immune system, you know, not being reactive, being proactive, you know, what about people who don't have a lot of money, what can you do to improve your health, some steps you can take, talking about the science of supplementation, vitamin D, vitamin C, vitamin C is really cheap, vitamin D is really cheap, you can get access to that and you can supply yourself and your family with some just better decisions and revolutionize your health that way. Whoo! All right, guys. This is a Webinar Wednesday. We've done more than 10 of these. Every Wednesday, we, we release them. Um, we've talked to a bunch of different guests, health professionals all across the country um, and even the world. Uh, this was Steph Lowe. We're going to be talking uh, to... Um, oh, I'm forgetting. Uh, I will let you... We'll, we'll just stay tuned. We're going to be talking to some more guests in the future every, every Wednesday. All these conversations are on YouTube uh, and pod all podcast platforms. So you can listen to them, watch them, and enjoy them. And then you can go to Webinar Wednesday um, on our orphaneducation.com website and um, put in your email if you want to be notified of these future conversations. Thank you so much, guys, for listening and watching. I'm Alexander Emanuel. You can catch me on the internet if you want to see me talk some more. Otherwise... Thank you for listening, guys, and uh, stay healthy. Get outside, go for a walk, go for a run, challenge your mind and body, and we're all going to be all right.